Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 19, 21 to 27, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Jesus and Economics. Who with integrity would deny you know, that the discussion of money is a part of the Christian faith. You know, when I was in pastoral ministry, I used to like to say that there were a lot of nerve endings in your wallet. You know, for a great many people, to reach into their wallet during giving time is just so painful. Now, while I said that in an attempt to be clever, I mean, the sober side of me wants to be quick to add that the Christian faith has often struggled with charlatans and hucksters who, you know, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 verse 5, who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Consider a man in the Middle Ages named Jacob Fugger. You know, man, some people claim was the richest man who ever lived, a man who was a contemporary of Martin Luther, a man who, by the time he died, owned about 2% of the European GDP. Fugger convinced the Pope to repeal the law that forbade charging of interest on loans, and that in itself was quite a feat. You know, Fugger not only advanced capitalism, but he also assured that the church, its bishops, you know, these were men who needed to secure a loan in order to become powerful bishops, that these men had made the loan from him. He controlled them. Fugger realized that religion was a powerful tool to advance his fortune. Emperors were in debt to him, as were popes. And that's the point. Religion and finances are often in an unholy alliance. Now, having said that, the Christian faith isn't silent on the matter of finances. You know, Jesus' words to the rich man, to sell everything he had and to give to the poor. Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 6 that the rich must be generous and willing to share. But not just the rich. The words are for everyone. The call to be givers, the call to give both generously and sacrificially are a part of our faith. We need to use our finances to advance the gospel and to care for the poor and the needy. And so there are both good and bad things to say about this matter of, you know, religion and money. And today, as we carry on our study of Acts chapter 19, which, you know, which is about Paul's extended stay in the city of Ephesus, we're going to encounter both of those extremes when it comes to money. So let's start with a good side, shall we? Acts 19, 21 to 22. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. You know, it is this very brief paragraph about the major plans that Paul was undertaking that interests me. In our text, Luke says nothing about the matter of money. It simply says that Paul recognized that his extended stay in Ephesus, which in all would have lasted, you know, close to three years, that it was now coming to an end. In his prayer time, by the prompting of the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul determined to make a circuitous route. He would take a ship and go across the Adriatic. He'd go back to Greece. He'd revisit the churches that he had planted on his second missionary journey. And after that, he would go to Jerusalem. And after that, he would turn around and then he'd make the journey of his life going all the way to Rome. You know, that's all that Luke tells us. But Paul, from his own writings, fills in a lot of the gaps here. 
See, it turns out that Paul had, shall we say, more than one reason to go back to Greece. He was not only going to, you know, check on how the churches were doing. He was going to raise money. Yeah, you heard it. He was going for financial reasons. And he says so without hiding it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. When he writes 2 Corinthians, Paul had left Ephesus. He was then in Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and he's writing to the Corinthians who are in Achaia, or southern Greece. He's writing for a number of reasons. He does want the Corinthians to know that he's coming to their city to raise money, and he's been doing it in Macedonia, and he's been very successful, and he hopes to be just as successful in Achaia. Indeed, he's been boasting about the Corinthians in Macedonia. He's telling the Macedonians that the Corinthians are going to give generously. And furthermore, he's sending some brothers ahead of him with a letter of 2 Corinthians in their hands. So here I'm reading 2 Corinthians 9, 5 to 6. Paul writes, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Yeah, don't give just a little, he says. You give much. Ah, but that's only half the story. What's Paul raising the money for? And that's the rest of the story. You see, was he raising it for his own private yacht? Kind of like modern televangelists raise money for their private jets, you know, so they don't have to fly on passenger planes. Well, hardly. For a long time now, Paul has sailed on ships and he's always taken the cheapest ticket that was available to him. And when later he wrote the Philippians when he was in prison in Rome, and because the Romans didn't feed or clothe their prisoners, the Philippian church sent him funds to feed and clothe themselves to which he responded, I'm well supplied. I need nothing further. I've learned in all things to be content. You know, Paul's not raising money for himself. That wasn't who he was. He explains himself in his letter to the Romans. He's raising money for the poor and destitute Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem. So listen to Romans 15, 26 to 27. He writes, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them, that is to the Jews, in material blessings. And then writing to the Romans, Paul fills in one more detail. Why is he going to Rome? Well, Romans fifteen twenty-eight. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. That is, Paul's going to come to Rome, he's going to spend some time teaching and sharing, you know, fellowship with them, and then raising money for a missionary journey to Spain so that the Spaniards, who up till then had heard nothing of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, that the Spaniards also would have an opportunity to hear. And that was the reality Paul lived with. Paul was a man on a mission. He was planting churches. He was strengthening churches. He was teaching churches that they were financially accountable to others and to the poor, and that also he was raising funds so that the worldwide proclamation of the gospel would continue. And I, and I say all of that so that we won't be under the naive assumption that the progress of the gospel can happen without funds necessary to advance the cause. See, I say all of this so that we would understand the vast difference between the faithful servant of Christ 
who looks for funds to do the Lord's work and the person who's using religion to advance his own wealth. And so it's now to this second category that religion can be used to become rich that we now turn as we continue in our study of Acts 19. Remember, Paul's still in Ephesus. He's finalizing his plans for his journey to Greece, then to Jerusalem. And then once he's taken care of the needs of the desperate church in Jerusalem, he's going to turn his face to Rome and then to Spain. And that's where we get to some unfinished business in Ephesus. Let's see what Luke tells us next. It's in Acts 19, 23 to 27. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines by Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. See, we won't be able to examine the riot that followed this incident, but we're going to talk about that the next time. But instead, let's stay with the topic about religion and its power in making profit, in making money, rather than in serving the needs of the lost and the needy. Now, consider the immediate difference between Paul and Demetrius. Paul is preaching the gospel. He's building the church. He's training up ministers. He's he's healing people in the name of Jesus. He's driving out demons. Everywhere he's going, he's releasing people from the power of Satan and showing them the mercy of Christ. In contrast, Demetrius is making idols. Luke says... The idols are high-end idols because Demetrius is a silversmith. And what's interesting about that is that in the contemporary archaeological digs around Ephesus, up till now, no silver idols have been found. And there's been lots of others, but not idols of silver. And what accounts for that? The answer is no one ever discarded silver idols. They were far too expensive. They melted them down and they used them again. Demetrius, well, he only made high-end stuff. He's making a lot of money. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of In Doubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer-songwriter and acclaimed worship leader and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's word. So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that In Doubt, with God's blessing, would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Luke begins with a phrase about that time, meaning about the time Paul was about to leave Ephesus, something happened. 
And in Luke's typical understated way, he describes this as there arose no little disturbance. That means, you know, what happened there was huge. You know, it overtook the entire city. And, and the implications suddenly introduced the flourishing and growing Christian church into controversy and into persecution. In an instant, everything was about to change. And this justice Paul was planning to leave. But Paul didn't leave for this matter made it necessary for him to stay. Paul tells the Corinthians about an incident that no doubt came from this, an incident that Luke doesn't mention in his, you know, highly abbreviated account. 1 Corinthians 15:32, Paul is arguing for the bodily resurrection of the dead and speaking of his confidence in the resurrection, he says, verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, I want to deal with the wider argument in Corinthians. Only that small phrase, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. You know, most Bible teachers feel that at some time, you know, probably after the riot ensued, that Paul had been thrown into the arena to fight with wild animals and that he had survived. And I mention that so that we understand the passion that's involved here. As I already indicated, there are nerve endings in our wallets. Money and its relationship to religion is very involved. You know, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, that was the architectural centerpiece of the city. You know, it not only attracted the faithful in the city, but it also attracted religious tourists. And people wanted to purchase artifacts that that could be used as objects of worship in their homes. And that's where the business part comes in. You know, if you want a point of contact, you might think about the Middle Ages. That was a corrupt church. They were selling holy relics, you know, supposed splinters from the cross of Jesus or such things. And people considered these things to be of great value. The church made a lot of money. Or think of modern day televangelists. You know, in the recent past, I know of one who is selling holy water from the Jordan or olive oil from the Mount of Olives so that if you use that to anoint the sick, that's really going to work. I mean, it's a sordid thing, this thing. So let's get back to the Temple of Artemis. Once you'd visited that temple, don't you want to take a part of her home and have her grace your home with her spiritual power? And so the faithful were encouraged to build expensive shrines in their homes. And that had spun an entire industry in the city. Now, from reading Luke's description of this matter, this silversmith, this man named Demetrius, brought in no little business to the other craftsmen. That is, Demetrius couldn't provide everyone with what was required. A guild would have been formed to oversee the receiving of licenses to make official idols, not the fake knockoffs that didn't have spiritual power. Again, I have to break in here. See, I know of one televangelist who sells dried food, food that you need to survive the great tribulation to come. And if that's what you need, well, why wouldn't you simply go online and find the cheapest dried food you can find? Well, the answer is, from this televangelist, it's not blessed by the Holy Spirit. Again, if you forgive the language, you know, you got to have a good BS meter and you got to smell this stuff out. And that's like Demetrius. He's the official guild that's created, licensed, high-end idols. But then, at least from the perspective of Demetrius, something horrible happened. Paul had showed up in the synagogue, proving to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. No one in Demetrius' circles even raised an eyebrow about that. That was a Jewish issue. And then Paul had gone to the Hall of Tyrannus, large public gallery. And then Paul had begun to cast out demons and then directly impacted the sale of idols. 
And then he healed the sick, something Diana couldn't do. And then to make matters worse, the converts to Christ were growing exponentially so that the church in Ephesus now comprised a significant percentage of the citizens of Ephesus. And if that weren't enough, at one point, the Christians started divesting themselves of all their magic books and their pagan practices. In short, they were done with idolatry. They now trusted Christ in Christ alone. And this movement must have been so significant that Demetrius sees a significant impact on his sales. Since he was a leader of a trade guild, he calls a meeting. I mean, this is an emergency. He calls together a meeting of the artisans and the workmen, and those are two different classes of people. The artisans are the skilled designers of the idols, and the workmen, they simply manufacture what others have designed. I mean, you'd have to think that the workmen, well, they'd be in a lower income category than the artisans. And it's the artisans who take the leadership. And of course, the workmen, well, their livelihood depends on the artisans, so they follow the leadership. And I make mention of this so that we might grasp that the idol trade in Ephesus was not a simple small industry. Like any large primary industry, all sorts of people depend on it. Even if you're a shop owner in Ephesus, you know, it's the well-paid idol makers that come and shop in your store. And it's all of that that Demetrius appeals to. And so Demetrius, having called the guild together, calls the meeting to order and he makes his speech. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you know everyone in the room knows very well that their source of income comes from this. All of them are prospering. They depend on idolatry. Now comes the negative note. This Paul is a threat to us, and he's not just a threat to us, but in all Asia, his preaching has convinced a great many people, in short, our customers, not just any people, but our customers, to believe that gods that are manufactured by our shops, built by our hands, are not gods at all. (laughs) Come to a full stop there. You know, because Demetrius is not a theologian, he's not making a statement about whether or not what Paul is teaching is true. Did you notice that? He doesn't set the case that gods made by human hands really are gods. I suspect he can't do that, and he's not interested in the argument. You know, on that note, consider what Jeremiah once mockingly said about idols. Jeremiah 10 verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. You know, that image of a scarecrow in a cucumber field, I find it fascinating. You know, birds come and they eat the cucumbers. And so the farmers have to ask, how do I keep the birds from doing that? I could put someone in the field 24 hours a day and drive them away, but that's too much. And so the farmer constructs a scarecrow, an idol, if you will. And the birds look at it and they assume that someone is standing there and it frightens them so they don't come to eat the cucumbers. But if the birds ever came to the conclusion that the scarecrows can't do evil to them, they would ignore them and keep eating the cucumbers. And the same is true for the idols in Ephesus. If people don't believe in them, then the idols are shown to be what they are, scarecrows. And that thought is what has Demetrius and his crew truly concerned. Their entire business depends on making scarecrows. Paul has convinced the birds, the scarecrows, are not to be feared. Demetrius says, we're going to all go broke. The temple of Artemis will no longer be valued as the most important religious symbol in this city, and therefore the great goddess will no longer appear magnificent. 
The Temple Diana was indeed the major hub of the economic life of Ephesus. It was huge. It had massive image of the goddess with a you know veiled head and her many breasts, and she was believed to protect the fertility of all living things. That is, if she wasn't there, how would anything go on, anything from the future of the human race to the fertility of the crops in the field? But it wasn't just the promise of fertility. It was also the promise of business. The actual temple received extravagant offerings from worshipers. Some scholars think that the temple of Artemis or Diana was the largest financial institution in all of Asia, so much so that the temple could actually secure business loans. It could make business loans. It was outrageously wealthy. You know, there comes a time in the life of a religion where truth is sacrificed for money. So everything they do depends on increasing profits and decreasing loss. Don't let people know about our scandals or our sins. We're just going to take a loss. And you see, after a while, no one knows or cares about what that religion thinks or believes. Rather, they think about, you know, land holdings, sales of sacred items, all sorts of things. You know, it's a temptation for a religion never to take on the sins of a culture. You know, imagine a church in Las Vegas you know, warning about the great harm that comes to countless lives through gambling. You know, if the offerings you're receiving come from the gambling industry, you're going to feel tempted never to touch the subject. You see, it's about religion and money. If the money goes to spread the good news of reconciliation with God in Christ, if it goes to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and provide for the sick, then it's good. But if it's used to further its own economics, it becomes a tool for the evil one. Thanks, John. You know, let me ask you a a quick question. Should churches be talking about money? There seems there are those who focus on money, those who think it's a conversation that's taboo, and, and those who just neglect the topic. But the Bible has something to say to the church, doesn't it? Yes, and it speaks regularly about money. I mean, it says so much about money. So uh, don't stop talking about money because some people abuse the topic. Uh, That's the word I need to say. If the scripture tells you to talk about money, talk about it in a scriptural way and encourage people also to glorify God with everything that they have. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, confronting the power base right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. God has called Christians to be salt and light. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. To request your free copy today and to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible 
www.thepowerhouse.ca.